You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. Um, let me kind of lead into it uh, in a very similar way that we led into it last week, uh, just by reminding you of what it is that we are about around here. And we say it in a very simple phrase. We enjoy Jesus and we make disciples. And every January, we give a couple of weeks to thinking about the first part of that phrase, that we are a people who enjoy the person of Jesus. Uh, We want to work that out and get that down into the the heart of of our church family. We are trying to do everything we can to help us all see through the uh, Jesus or joy myth. And that myth is rampant in our world. Uh, So many people believe their options are follow Jesus and forsake joy or follow joy and forsake Jesus. Those are the only options. These, these two stand on opposite sides. They're not with each other, they're against each other. And that is just not true. We said this last week, that following Jesus will cost you many things in life, so many things in your life, but joy is not one of those things. It's not one of the costs to following Jesus. In the scriptures, it's not Jesus or joy, rather it's Jesus as our joy. That's the invitation of the Bible to come and feast on the person of Jesus, to fill your heart up with the person of Jesus. So how do we do that? That's the question that we started to answer last week. We gave one answer. One way we do that is by delighting daily in Jesus through the word of God. That's one answer. And then this week, I want to give the next one. Uh, How do we enjoy Jesus? Well, we delight daily in Jesus through prayer. I want to spend a morning with you thinking about prayer, how it intersects with your life, what it looks like in your life, prayer. To do that, we're going to look at one verse in Colossians 4. I love the whole passage you just heard read. It gives so many of the the sort of missionary impulses uh, that prayer is addressing. I I love that. Uh, But I want to look at one particular verse, uh, verse 2 of Colossians 4 this morning. And here's what we read. Continue steadfastly. Other translations say, uh, be devoted. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. I want to ask just a few questions about uh, this verse, Colossians 4.2. Question number one is, what is prayer? Uh, Number two is, what does devoted to prayer mean? And then question three is, why would Paul command that? Why why would he command us to be steadfast in prayer? Why why would he say that? So let's just work this passage out with these questions. First, what is prayer? Um, I would commend to every parent in the room to get the New City Catechism. A catechism is just a simple question and answer sort of format where you're teaching theology. That's a catechism. And the New City Catechism is a really great one. It takes a lot of the older catechisms, brings it up into modern language, puts it into 52 questions, one per uh, week of the year. It's a great tool to teach theology in your house, the New City Catechism. But question number 38 asks this, what is prayer? That's that's question 38. What is prayer? And here's uh, the answer the New City Catechism gives. Prayer is pouring out our hearts to God in praise, petition, confession of sin, and thanksgiving. 
That, that's prayer. Prayer is pouring out our hearts to God. Now, I love that definition, and I love that, that little phrase, pouring out our hearts. Uh, in a lot of ways, that, that phrase, pouring out our hearts, gives us eyes to see that so often what, what passes as prayer really misses the essence of prayer. What, what, what so often sort of um, we look at and call prayer, it just it's missing the very heart of what prayer is. Uh, Paul Miller in his book, A Praying Life, talks about prayer like this. He says, it's the real you meeting the real God. It's the real you. It's not the fake you. It's not the, the you that you want to present to God or to other people that's better than you. It's the real you meeting the real God. It's the messy you, the emotionally unstable you. It's the you that is prone to, to wander from God and to leave the God that you love. It's, it's the unpresentable you. It's, it's the you that has that thought that passes through your head that you would die if anyone knew. It's that you, the, the real you meeting the real God. That's prayer. It's pouring out your heart. The, the real you that's down there, it's pouring out that heart to God in prayer. Maybe you could think of it this way. Uh, there is a huge difference between saying prayers and honest praying. Between saying prayers and actually pouring out your heart to God in honest prayer. There is a huge difference between those two things. Uh, several years ago, I read a biography of Charles Spurgeon, and uh, gosh, it was so impactful in so many different ways. But one of the things I loved about it is learning that as good of a preacher as Charles Spurgeon was, he was actually a better prayer than he was a preacher. And that's a good thing to be said about any pastor, and that, that was true of Charles Spurgeon. And the, the, uh, the biographer went on to talk about the Sermon on the Mount, and, uh, and Jesus is teaching in the Sermon on the Mount on prayer, where Jesus says, don't be like the Gentiles who heap up empty phrases. And, and they're doing that. They're adding a lot of words because they think that a lot of words is what's going to make th their prayer hearable to God. So he's just teasing that out. And, and then the, the biographer went on to say this. He said, it wasn't until people prayed with Charles Spurgeon that they realized they were just saying prayers. N not pouring out their heart to God in prayer, just saying prayers. Hey, and I wonder if that's true of you. I, I wonder if your prayer life looks more like my heart wide open being poured out before God or you, you heaping up phrases to God, just saying things to God. Praying, according to the New City Catechism, comes in four forms. It's pouring out our hearts to God in praise. That's adoration. That's, that's looking at God and, and praying back God's goodness to him. Praise or adoration. It comes in petition, making request to God. We ought to be a people asking huge things from God all the time. I love how John Newton encourages that. He says, we are coming to a king. Large petitions with us bring, for his grace and power are such that none can ever ask too much. So, so we come asking, petitioning God. We come confessing sin. This is part of what it means to pour out our hearts to God. We, we're confessing the ugly parts of us. But we're repenting to God of those ugly parts of us. And then thanksgiving, it's acknowledging and thanking God for his many kindnesses in our life. And friends, it is impossible to overstate the importance of prayer in your life. 
If you are a follower of Jesus, it is impossible to overstate how important prayer is. Think about private prayer for a moment. Private prayer, I think, is the single greatest litmus test of genuine faith. Like, how do you know your faith is for real? I think you can look at private prayer, your, your private prayer life, and that gives you as good of a glimpse as anything else as to the legitimacy of your faith. J.I. Packer, he says it this way. He says, I believe that prayer is the measure of a man spiritually in a way that nothing else is. So that how we pray is as important a question as we can ever face. I'm going to read that one more time for you. He says, I believe that prayer is the measure of a man spiritually in a way that nothing else is. So that how we pray is as important a question as we can ever face. Prayer, in particular private prayer, is a litmus test for genuine faith. Now, why is that? Well, think about all the things that you sort of quote-unquote do for God. Think about all those things. Almost everything that you're doing in, in your life of faith with God are done in front of people. And anytime you're doing things in front of people, it's always posing the question, am I doing that for him or for them? Who am I actually doing this for? For his applause or for their applause? So that, so that he will think much of us, or so that th th these people will think much of me. Who am I doing this for? If you look at your life, you'll see the same thing that I see about my life, that wrong motives often energize right actions, like preaching, like giving generously, like serving people, like loving my neighbor. But... A person seldom goes into a prayer closet and there alone with God pours out their heart to God unless there is a genuine love of Jesus in them. It is a great test of just the legitimacy of a love of God in us. Or as Packer says, I believe that prayer is the measure of a man spiritually in a way that nothing else is, so that how we pray is as important a question as we can ever face. So let's just linger here for a moment. Just ask the question, how is your prayer life? How's your prayer life? In particular, think about your private prayer life. Just you in the closet, like Jesus says in Matthew 6, in the closet with God. How is your prayer life? When you think about the last week, the last month, the last year of your life, is there a consistent rhythm of delighting daily in Jesus, moment by moment in Jesus through prayer? How's your prayer life? That's what is prayer. Now let's get to question number two. What does devoted to prayer mean? What does Paul mean when he says be steadfast or continue steadfastly in prayer? Be devoted to prayer. What does he mean? Well, that word translated uh, devoted or continue steadfastly shows up in multiple places in the scriptures, in particular the New Testament, linked to prayer. Uh, so for instance, in Acts chapter 1, verse 14, the disciples are waiting uh, in Jerusalem for the Holy Spirit. And, and we read there uh, that these all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer. 
Uh, You see this again in Acts chapter 2, a very famous passage in Acts. They were continuing, talking about the early church, they they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of the bread, and they were devoting themselves to prayer, Acts 2, 42 says. Um, Or Acts chapter 6, the apostles say, we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. Or Paul says in Acts chapter 12, or in Romans 12, verse 12, Paul says, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer. Those two words are linked often enough that at the bare minimum, we should see this, devotion and prayer. These two things linked together, continuing steadfastly in prayer, devoted to prayer. That is what the Bible considers normative Christianity. Being devoted to prayer is not abnormal. It doesn't mean that you're weird as a, it just means you are a normal Christian, a normal follower of Jesus, devotion, prayer. These two things are linked together. Uh, So what does it mean to be devoted to prayer? It means that prayer has moved beyond something we occasionally do to something that defines us. So it's no longer just this little thing in our life that we do periodically. No, it's at the center of our life defining everything we're doing in our life. It means that we have changed from a person who prays and we have now become a praying person. So a person who prays is someone who periodically, as the moment needs, prays. A praying person is just a person who is defined by prayer. It's it's just in all of their life woven into their life. Um, Maybe you could ask yourself the question, when do you pray? Just just think about that question in your life. When do you pray? And I think for most people, prayer lives in a very small box in our life. So when we're answering the question, when do we pray? It might be something like this. Um, Well, I pray before I eat a meal. That's when I pray. Um, I pray maybe it's before I go to bed. That's when I pray. I pray when I have to, when life just has me so knocked down that it's the only thing I know to do. Uh, That's when I pray. Uh, But typically for most people, it's living in a very small box. And part of what Paul and really the rest of the Bible wants to do is it wants to rip prayer out of those small boxes. It wants to rip it out of just the before your meal and and you eat sort of a moment. Before you go to bed, it wants to rip it out of all of that. Now, and let me just be clear on this. Paul is not, when he says be devoted to prayer, he's not saying, I want you to just sort of reprioritize prayer in your life. And this is how I so often hear sermons on prayer like this. It's uh, maybe prayers down here at number nine or 10 in the priority list of my life. And and man, I hear this sermon and I think, okay, I've got to get it up to like number three in my life. That's not what Paul's saying. He's not saying I want you to reprioritize prayer. That's not what he means. Paul doesn't mean that, that he wants prayer sort of moved up the list of your life. What what Paul means when he says, I want you to be devoted to prayer is, I want prayer to permeate the list of your life. Everything you're doing in your life, I want prayer to saturate it. Do you see the difference in that? Paul's not saying, I want to just create a little bigger box for prayer to live in in your life. So so let's get it out of this small box and let's get it into a medium box. It's not what he's saying. He's saying, no, I want prayer to be woven into the entirety of your life, your whole life to be made of prayer so that whatever you're doing, 
Wherever you're doing it, prayer is just defining all of it. You're just living in constant conversation with God. You're always praying in every circumstances, both big and small moments. Both, both good and bad moments, both painful and pleasurable moments. Paul is saying, I'm just inviting you into a new way of living. And that new way of living is, is with God, constantly before God, in moment by moment, conversation with your dad. I'm inviting you into that way of living. This is what Paul is doing here. And let me say this again. This is normative Christianity. It's not that you're abnormal if you are living in constant conversation with God. It means that you are a normal Christian, a run-of-the-mill Christian, just a run-of-the-mill follower of Jesus is living with God. This is the relationship that God has invited us into, a moment-by-moment, minute-by-minute, all-of-life relationship. I lived in constant conversation with him. So let me ask you again, how was your prayer life? Is it a regular rhythm of delighting daily in Jesus through prayer? Are you living in this sort of constant conversation with God? This is part of what it means to abide in Jesus. It means that we are living moment by moment aware that Jesus exists, that, that he's in this moment that he's present with me right now. That's what Paul is inviting you into, devoted to prayer. Now, question three. Why is it commanded? Why is this a command in the scriptures? Continue steadfastly in prayer. Be devoted in prayer. Why is that commanded? Well, Paul is a pastor, and as a pastor, he knows his own heart, and he knows the heart of the people that he's pastoring. And Paul knows about us what we know about us, that prayer is hard. He knows that most of us struggle really deeply with prayer. If we could just peel back one another's hearts in this room, we would find in this room, most of us, virtually all of us, really struggle with prayer. But really struggle to live in constant conversation with God. Uh, prayer is hard. Prayer, I don't know if you feel this. I, I always, every day I feel this. Uh, prayer never feels like the most important thing I could be doing right now. It, it always feels like there are a thousand other more urgent things that, that are more important to do in this moment than praying. But prayer is hard. Most people over the course of their life just sort of give up on a rich, vibrant prayer life. And Paul is saying no to that. I, I know it's hard, but Paul also knows that prayer is important. That prayer is as important to your spiritual life as breathing is to your physical life. Do you see prayer that way? I mean, just take a big, deep breath in. And you are filling your lungs with oxygen, and that oxygen then gets into your blood and out to your body, and it is sustaining your body. And as important as that breath is to your life, so is prayer to your life with God. Or we could say it this way, neglecting prayer is spiritual suicide for a Christian. If you go without prayer in your life, 
your life with God will wither and die. Now, why is that? Why is Paul commanding us to pray here? Why is prayer so important? Let me just give you three of many reasons we could point to as to why prayer is so important in our life. Here's one. Prayer is how we know Jesus. It's how we know the person of Jesus. Church, I want us so badly to know God. Not just to know about God, but to know the living God. J.I. Packer, when he starts his book, Knowing God, he asks a series of questions in chapter three. He says, what are we made for? His answer, to know God. That's what we're made for, to know God. What should we aim at in life? His answer, to know God. What is the eternal life that Jesus gives? According to John 17, 3, he says, it's to know God. What is the best thing in life, bringing more joy and delight and contentment than anything else? He quotes Jeremiah 9, to know God. What of all states God ever gives man in, gives God most pleasure? Like when, when, when God sees a human heart doing this and, and in this, it just pleases the heart of God. What is that? According to Hosea 6.6, 6, Packer says, it's knowing God. Y- yes, knowing God. So it's an important thing about our life. It's knowing, knowing God. There's, there's nothing more important than knowing the most important being in the universe. Think about, think about the person of Jesus for a moment. Uh, Think about uh, why Jesus came. He he came and lived in our place. He died in our place. Then he busted out of the grave, defeating Satan's sin and death itself. Now, why did he do all of that? Well, here is Peter's answer. In 1 Peter 3, verse 18, Peter says, Yet he also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous. Why? Here's his reason. That he might bring us to God. The greatest news of the gospel is not that your sins have been forgiven. It's it's amazing, it's foundational, but it's not the greatest news of the gospel. The greatest news of the gospel is not that you're no longer under the wrath of God. As great as that is, it's not the greatest news of the gospel. The greatest news of the gospel is that through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we get God that now you can actually know the most important being in the universe. You can be in relationship with the most important being in the universe. Jesus has brought us in relationship with the one that we were made for. That's the greatest news of the gospel. So then that poses the question, how do we get to know God? Well, you get to know God in the same way you get to know a person. We get to know God by spending time with God, by living in constant conversation with God, by living in his presence every moment of our lives, or we could just say it this way, we get to know God through prayer. That's how you get to know God, by living before God every moment of your life. Prayer is a way that we know Jesus. It's how we know Jesus. Secondly, Prayer is how we enjoy Jesus. It's how we enjoy Jesus. Knowing Jesus is meant to delight and just thrill a human heart. 
this quote by J.R. Packer, I've just been thinking about this over the last month over and over. It's just sort of been um, like on a rotisserie, just in my mind, just looking at it and staring at it and thinking about it, where he says, knowing God is a relationship calculated to thrill a person's heart. That's amazing. That, that knowing God is calculated to take your heart and set it on fire. It, it, it's meant to take your heart and just insert the deepest thrills into your heart that your heart can take. That's what knowing God is meant to produce. Um, I, I often think about this, and I said this last weekend at the family meeting, of the heart of God is this vast universe. And that vast universe we have been invited into. Just to come into and explore. There's endless discoveries in the heart of God. And God is saying, come in and just explore the vast universe of my heart. And here's what happens as you explore the heart of God. It is one thrill after another. And how do we come into the heart of God and enjoy the heart of God? We do that through prayer. By being with God. By talking to God. By living in the presence of God, prayer is one way we delight daily in the person of Jesus. I love how C.S. Lewis talks about prayer. He says, prayer in the sense of petition or asking for things is a small part of it. Now, hear that. He's saying prayer, like oftentimes when we think of prayer, we instantly think this is just me asking God for things. And that is a, a part of prayer. But he's saying that is a small part of prayer. Then he goes on to say, confession and repentance, that's like the threshold of prayer. We have now stepped into the room of prayer. And then he says, adoration, that's the sanctuary. Now when we are praising God for who he is, adoring the person of God, we are in the sanctuary of prayer with God. And then he says, but the presence and vision and enjoyment of God, that's the bread and wine of prayer. Yes to that. Through prayer, God has invited us into the sanctuary of his heart to enjoy bread and wine with him, of his presence. That's what prayer is meant to do. Prayer is, is one way for us to enjoy the person of Jesus. So prayer is how we know Jesus, it's how we enjoy Jesus, and prayer connects us to the power of Jesus. In passages like this and throughout the Bible, when you're commended to pray, in passages like this, the goal is not just that we would pray, it is that, but it's more than that. The goal is that we would pray in a particular way with expectancy and hopefulness and joyfulness because we are praying to the very one who holds the world in his hands. That we would pray knowing that it, that prayer is connected to our all-powerful God. That that's, we are praying to, to God. That the God who spoke this world into existence. But we're praying to that God. I love how H.B. Charles talks about uh, this. He says, why should I pray? His answer, because prayer works. And then he goes on to say, more accurately, God works when we pray. And then I love this last line. Listen to what he goes on to say. He says, when we work, we work. But when we pray, God works. 
That's an amazing privilege we have, isn't it? That when we pray, God works. When you think about how the the New Testament authors saw prayer, that they didn't see it as, as something they did to pray for their work, that they saw prayer as their work. Because they knew when they pray, God works. Like if we just go get about our work, it's just going to be us working. But when we pray, God works. Do you believe that? I have found that over the years, life in a fallen world has a way of beating that belief that God works in our prayers out of people. And we just sort of give up on that. Just look at your, do you believe that when you pray, you are praying to an almighty God who works with your prayers? The the Bible is consistently trying to pull us out of our cynicism with prayer. It's just trying to give us example after example in the scriptures of God working in our praying, of our praying being the catalyst for God's working. Uh, Take James chapter five as a for instance. Uh, One of the things James is trying to get us to do is to pray more uh, in chapter five. But it's not just to pray more. He wants us to pray believing that prayer actually works. That's James chapter five. And he gives several illustrations of that. But here's one in James chapter five. This is verses 17 and 18. He gives the example of Elijah. And here's what he says about Elijah. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. So it was nothing special about Elijah. What was special is Elijah's God. So he says he has a nature just like ours. And Elijah prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, James says it did not rain on the earth. Then he goes on to say, then Elijah prayed again. And heaven gave rain and the earth bore its fruit. James and Paul and the rest of the biblical authors are just looking at us, trying to help us see why do we pray? We pray because it connects us to the power of Jesus, to the power of God. Is God sovereign over the rain? Of course he is. did, Did God determine when it would rain and when it would stop raining? Of course God did. And God sovereignly ordained that when Elijah prayed, the rain would stop. And when Elijah prayed again, the rain would start. Because prayer is connecting us into a God who controls the rain. To a God that that powerful. Or as John Piper says it, prayer is the splicing of our limp wire to the lightning bolt of heaven. That's what you're doing when you pray. You're splicing your limp wire into the power of God. It's really amazing. If you do a word study on prayer in the New Testament, here's what you're going to find over and over again. You're going to find that things start happening when they were praying or as the people of God were praying. When and as they were praying, then things, God starts doing things. It connects us to the power of God. Years ago, again, I read Paul Miller's book, A Praying Life, which I would commend to you. I think it would be a real encouragement to your prayer life. Uh, But I remembered reading this sentence, uh, reading through that book. And it just, it's always stuck with me. He said, I cannot stress enough that God is actually answering my prayers. I just remembered reading that sentence thinking, I I love that. I need to be reminded of that. I I cannot stress enough that God is actually answering my prayers. 
It's just a reminder that that when we pray, we are praying to an all-powerful father who can give good gifts to his kids. But we're also praying to an all-powerful father who loves to give good gifts to his kids. And when we pray, we, we, are, we are splicing our limpness into the lightning bolt, the power of God. That's why we pray to know God, to enjoy Jesus, and then to connect ourselves to the power of Jesus. Now, here's what I want to do to finish up. I want to just give three encouragements to you. Uh, chances are, every one of us in here would like a better prayer life. I, I want that. Chances are you want that. So I just want to give you three encouragements um, just to encourage you toward that. Three ways to encourage you toward cultivating and pursuing a more vibrant prayer life. Number one, I just want to encourage you to make sure every day you pray the Bible. You pray the Bible. Prayer springs naturally from Bible reading, from Scripture memory. Bible reading is meant to spring us forward into prayer. So when you sit down and break open the Bible, you're not finished after you read a passage or a chapter or a text. That's not when you finish. You're finished after you pray that passage back to God, pouring out your heart to God in that passage. That's, that's when you finish. We oftentimes use the acronym REAP to talk about Bible reading. And just follow along with this acronym. So you've got R-E-A-P. So the R is read. We open up the Bible and, and we read the Bible, but we're not done when we read a text. Then it goes to the E. That's examine. That means that we are observing what is in the text. But what do we see here in this chapter of the Bible? And then we interpret it. What, what does that mean? So observe what's there. Interpret what does it mean? That's examine. And then you get to the A of read. We apply it. What would this text have for me today? How would this change the way that I'm, I'm seeing or thinking or believing? What do I need to take from this text and incorporate into my life? That's application. And then you get to the P of reap, and the P is prayer. After you have read the text, examined the text, applied the text, then you pray the text. This is what our Bible reading should lead us to. It's to take a passage in and then to pour our heart out to God with that passage in prayer. And by the way, this is one of the things I love about the CBR journal. We talk about that a lot. It's got our Songate Bible reading plan in it. You can get those out in the resource area. But what I love about that journal is it, is it takes your Bible reading and it forces you to think about this text in terms of prayer. How am I going to turn this into petition and praise and, and confession and thanksgiving? How am I going to do that? It just forces you to think about the Bible like that, to make sure that P stays at the end of your Bible reading, to make sure prayer is that springboard that your Bible reading uh, takes you to. Every time you read the Bible, it is an opportunity for the real you to meet the real God. And you haven't finished reading the Bible until that has happened, until the real you has met the real God. So pray the Bible. Secondly, is to enjoy Jesus together in prayer. To enjoy Jesus together in prayer. To pray with other people. To make this a normal, regular habit in your life. To pray with other people. And I've said this uh, story a, a few times over the years, but several years ago I was talking to a friend 
Uh, he was a pastor friend, and I called him. We were trying to line up a time to, to grab some lunch and to, uh, to meet up with one another. And uh, we, uh, I threw out a date, and he responded back, gosh, I would love to do that date, but I can't do that because I'm going to meet uh, with a friend of mine for an hour to pray over lunch that day. And it just like um, a little barb stuck in me from that conversation of like, gosh, I so seldom am giving things like a lunch to meet a friend to pray. I, I so seldom do that. I just think about your life. How often does something like that happen? I'm going to intentionally meet with a friend of mine, and we are going to pray the Bible together. Uh, think about the Lord's Prayer for a moment. The Lord's Prayer does not start out like this. My Father, who art in heaven. It doesn't start out like that, does it? How does it start? It starts out like this. Our Father in heaven. Uh, when Jesus is teaching us how to pray, he is assuming we are going to be praying together. That would be a normal habit in our life. He's not assuming near as much of the individual as he is like we together are going to be a praying people. So maybe you could think about this in the context of your family. Uh, for those in the room who are married, is praying with your spouse and or your kids, is that a normative thing in your house? Like, if you were to go home and do that today, would your family be like, dude, what has gotten into mom? What, what has happened to her? What, where did my dad go and can I please have him back? Would that, would that be the response? Or would that be like, yeah, that's just the normative things that we do around here. This is normative Christianity. It's not weird. It's normative Christianity. And men, if, if it's... If it's true that in your house right now it would be weird, then this is an area of leadership the Lord is inviting you into. The Lord has made you to be a loving leader in the context of your home. And here's so often what leadership looks like in the home. Let's, let's open up the Bible and read it together. Just saying the word let's a lot. Let's, let's take the Bible and let's pray it together. It's just, it's a normative way that leadership happened. Let, let's, let's do this together. Let's pray together. Let's open the Bible, talk about it, pray it through. Uh, parents, in God's design, your kids get to learn how to pray by watching you. Not someone else, by watching you. And so for every parent in the room, we need to ask the question, what are my kids learning as they watch me pray? Are they seeing me pour out my heart to God, just living in constant conversation with God? Every moment of every day, they're just seeing me interact with the living God. Or think about this in terms of your friendships. Is, is something like this normative in, in your close circle of friendships? That we are going to pray together in a consistent sort of a way, often. This is, this is normal. It's not an abnormal thing. It just, this is sort of what we do consistently in our relationships. And if it's not, here's what leadership in your friendship looks like. Just using that word, let's again. Let's, let's get together for lunch on Tuesday and let's spend an hour praying. Uh, you, uh, this is all it takes to do that. Take Romans 8 as a for instance. Just grab that chapter of the Bible and read it in five chunks. Take the first seven or eight verses, read that, and then spend five minutes praying. That first section of Romans 8. Then go to the next section of Romans 8. Then read that, then pray that. Then go to the next section of Romans 8. Pray that. Just do that five or six times. There's your 45 minutes to an hour, and you have just refreshed one another. Re refreshed your friend. They have refreshed you. You've enjoyed Jesus together in prayer. Listen to one author as he's talking about this. Uh, listen to what he says. 
He says, when we share the joy of prayer, we double our joy. When we make the regular practice of praying together with fellow believers, we avail ourselves to a channel of joy we otherwise would be neglecting. And by praying with others, we not only add to our joy, but also to theirs. Praying together, just a way of refreshing your friendships, of enjoying Jesus together. Third encouragement, and lastly, and we'll end here. I want to encourage you to fast to sharpen your affections for Jesus. To fast. And fasting is one way that we sharpen our affections. Fast to sharpen your affections. Fasting is forgoing food or any other sort of often enjoyed good gift from God. So that could be TV, that could be social media, fill in the blank. But fasting is normally forgoing food for the sake of some spiritual purpose. That's fasting. Normally, it means abstaining from everything but water uh, for a prolonged period of time. And in the scriptures, that could be a night, that could be a day, that could be three days, seven days, 14 days, 21 days, uh, even up to 40 days uh, with Jesus in the desert. And prayer and fasting in the Bible go hand in hand. You, you see these talked about together in so many places in the Bible. And when Jesus is talking about fasting, two things stick out. Uh, when I think about Jesus' teaching on fasting. One is that Jesus assumes it. In, in Matthew 6, when he's talking about uh, fasting in the Sermon on the Mount, he just, he, he doesn't command us to fast. He doesn't say, now go fast. He just assumes that we do. And he says, when you fast, there's just an assumption in the heart of Jesus that this is what all of his followers are going to be doing. It's going to be a normative sort of habit in their life. They're going to be fasting. So he assumes it. That's Matthew 6. Uh, but the second interesting thing that sticks out about Jesus' teaching on fasting is that Jesus connects fasting to a longing for his return. That's Matthew 9, if you want to go see it. That, that Jesus connects fasting with longing, a, a longing for him and, and his return. So if you ask Jesus, why did you not command us to fast? Why is there no command in the New Testament to fast? I think Jesus would look at us and say something like, um, why would I command it? I don't need to command it because fasting flows from every heart that is hungry for me, longing for me and for my return. Because fasting is an expression of our longing. It's an expression of our hunger for the person of Jesus. But here's what I love so much about fasting. Fasting not only expresses our longing for Jesus, it can also increase our longing for Jesus. Uh, the old pastor and commentator, Matthew Henry, he, he said it this way. He says, fasting serves to put an edge upon our affections. Would you like to have an edge upon your affections for Jesus? He's saying, then, then fast. Do you want to grow in your enjoyment of Jesus? Then say with just some simple fast, God, this is how much I want you. God, this is how much I want to want you, oh God. And, and you can start slow. I, I would encourage you just to pick a day a week, just one day a week and, and go for 24 hours. You can work up from there, but just 24 hours, maybe from dinner to dinner, you're missing two meals. And over breakfast and lunch, pray, use that time to pray to Jesus to express your longing, to ask him to increase your longing for him. And every time your stomach growls, say, oh God, I want you more than my stomach wants food. 
I'll finish with this from Charles Spurgeon. He was a pastor in London from a century ago, and he said this about uh, the church that he pastored there. He said, our seasons of fasting and prayer at the tabernacle, that was his church, have been high days indeed. Never has heaven's gate stood wider. Never have our hearts been nearer the central glory. Don't we want for heaven's gates to stand wide? And don't we want our hearts to be just there in and with the presence of God? Don't, don't we want that? And if so, then church, let's delight daily in Jesus through prayer. Amen? Will you pray with me? I want to give you just a moment to allow the Spirit of God to press into you what would be helpful today and to wipe away the things that wouldn't be. What would be a step Jesus would have you take today? For some of us in the room, <clears throat> that step that's in front of you, that first step, is for your real first prayer. That first prayer where you cry out to God as you turn from your sin and you throw your life upon the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And you, just in the best way you know how, you cry out to God and say, God, save me, rescue me. For some today, it's that first prayer where we take that decisive step toward Jesus. Where we go from spiritually dead to spiritually alive. Where we go from under the wrath of God to under the warm welcome of God. And if that's you, I just want to encourage you right there where you are, cry out to God in prayer. Hold your life up to God and say, I'm trusting in the person and work of Jesus. Save me. And he stands so willing and ready to do that today. And for the rest of us in the room, how is our prayer life? Is there a regular rhythm of delighting daily in Jesus through prayer? You know, typically we don't change by massive overhauls in our life, but in smaller tweaks. And so what, what would be the small steps the Lord would have you take today for a more vibrant and rich life of prayer? Oh God, would you show us that today? God, would you show us that today? God, we want to know you. The living God, we want to know you. God, we want to enjoy you. And so, God, would you teach us to pray? Oh, God, would you teach us what it looks like to live in moment-by-moment moment conversation with you? And it's in the good name of Jesus that we ask it. Amen.